This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. How do you quantify all the horrors and, and pain and suffering that, that was brought upon the colonized people? This week, my guest is the curious activist, author, and filmmaker, Princess Esmeralda of Belgium. Esmeralda is refreshing in her drive to continue to learn, her dedication to the causes close to her heart, and also in refusing to shy away from the hard truths. Though our conversation touched on difficult and often polarizing topics, ranging from Belgium's role in the Congo to the removal of colonial era statues, we had a delightful talk that I hope helps people to acknowledge their privilege and use that privilege to help others. Here's our conversation. Well, Esmeralda, welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Hello, Mungi. I'm so excited also. And I have a lot of questions for you, so I'm going to jump right in. Um, my first one is about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I'm wondering what is missing from your resume that you think is important for people to know about you? Mm, I had thought about that, but... Um... Maybe that I'm still very curious. I, I really want to learn. I want to, to learn from all sorts of different people, especially young people like you. I have uh, <laughs> children who are 20 and 23, and I can guarantee you I'm learning every day with them, with their enthusiasm, with their uh, desire, wishes, and, and struggles sometimes. So I think, yes, I'm curious. and. Also, I like having fun. Mm. You know, I always remember something that a good friend of mine, who is actually South African, and uh, I'm sure you know him, it's uh, Kumi Neidu. Mm -hmm. He always told me, if you do activism, you also have to have fun, because this gives you energy to continue. I mean, we are in difficult situation for the moment, and we have to fight, but let's have fun also. And yeah. that's something I, I always remember and I like to do it. Uh, it's not all work, work, or even if it's work, it can be work with fun. Yeah, you have to have some joy in your life. Otherwise, yeah. you wouldn't be able to sort of continue on. Yeah, I like that. I also um, think I'm curious. I, I always say that I if I could be a forever student, I would do it. But we all, I guess, have to make some money at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you study? I So in my undergrad, I studied international studies, and then in my master's, I did international studies and diplomacy. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Impressive. So I would go back and do it again, maybe do a PhD, who knows. And I want to ask you, what, what do you see as your purpose work? I want to fight for a better society. It looks very grand, but I mean, everybody can do uh, contribution as little as it can be so what I do is I try to amplify voices uh, of the people who we don't listen to so yeah. sometimes it's young people very often it's women because we still have this problem uh, actually it's uh, terrible that in 2021 we have still to fight for women's rights Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's also indigenous people, it's people of the global south, and um, 
And yes, it's all about the environment, human rights, uh, women's rights. Uh, everything is so connected for the moment. It is, it is. And, and you know, speaking about it being connected, I, you know, you're an activist. And as you said, you, you're passionate about women's rights. I know that you're also passionate about indigenous people's rights and also the environment. And so I wonder if you could sort of talk about the interconnectedness of these three things in your activism and maybe sort of also how people in positions of power respond to you when you reach out to them to sort of get them involved. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit how it started for me. I have always been uh, very interested by the environment and, and nature and our biodiversity, in fact. Right. This comes from my father, because my father was really a pioneer in the, in the field. And he used to spend months, you know, in uh, whether it was in the Amazon, in Brazil, really living with the indigenous people, learning mm. their their culture, knowledge. And, and so he was the first one who said to me, first of all, our biodiversity is really threatened by all what we do, by all the extraction and... Uh, um, you know, all what, what is happening in the world, in our industrial world. But also yeah. he was the one who told me indigenous communities are really the ones that know how to live in nature and in harmony. And we have to really defend them, protect them, work with them. So that came like this for me. I was raised in this, uh, in, in all the, this philosophy, I would say. And then came obviously the, the, the climate uh, crisis. Yeah. And then because it's so much linked, biodiversity loss and climate crisis, I sort of worked on the two fronts, but always bringing the, the local communities, the indigenous communities' rights together with that. And then we mentioned women's rights. In all those communities, I noticed that the women play an incredible role Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's difficult because they don't have the same rights as as the, the men, but they are on the forefront. They know nature. They they have a lot, of course, of of work in uh, to get the food, to get the water. So they are the first victims, but also yeah. the first agents of change. I would say. So that's how I see that it's all uh, interconnected. Yeah, absolutely, and. I know that I've, you know, read of some of your work and some of your speaking and um, was sort of wondering how you think we can save ourselves and save our world. Um, I think that you, you said something about the need for us to confront our past. So I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, people started to, to make the link between uh, colonialism and the climate crisis and the environment destruction. Yeah. And once you start looking at it, it's very clear. I mean, it all started when the European powers went to Africa, to Latin America, to Asia, with the idea of taking the resources and not for the good of the country where they were in, mm. but for their own country back. And, uh, well, I'm in Belgium right now, I am Belgian, and I see all around the city, the capital, Brussels, beautiful buildings that were built, constructed at the time of uh, 
uh, our colony, which was the actual DRC now. And why? Because we got all the, the precious uh, thing from uh, DRC, like, uh, like the rubber, like the gold, like the diamonds, and all that built an incredible wealth for us mm -hmm. and very little for the country. And not only that, not only did we plunder resources, and I mean, the French did the same, and the Spanish did the same, and the Dutch did the same. It's all European yeah. powers and, and the everyone. British. <laughs> everyone. And we built, really, our, our period of glory with that. But as I said, not only plundering the resources, but obviously exploiting people, because the natives were used as tools to get the resources. Mm -hmm. And also, obviously, uh, mistreated and killed. We know that. Uh, we, the only thing we don't know is how many million of people died. So this, we can say that the effects are still uh, felt today. One, on one side, because of the environment, because we continue to plunder the resources, and now it's mm -hmm. with multinationals, but also for the people, because the descendants of uh, the colonized had for a long time a terrible complex of inferiority, which was really built on this narrative of the white supremacists saying we are uh, the people that matter. Mm. The saviors, yeah. The saviors. And I'm sad to say that it's, it's still the case today in many, many countries. And the multinational take advantage of that. And they, they pushed away the local community and the indigenous people. And because they are poor and because they are marginalized, still going back to the colony, that uh, can happen. And, well, you know better than me, uh, the situation in Africa, mm. such a rich continent, and still it's Europe and other powers yeah, now China that are profiting the too. most. Now China. So, yes, I, I think it's very important to confront the past for us European and to see that we have a big responsibility yeah. and to try to change this system. And, you know, you're, you're speaking of Belgium and you're there now. And I know that you have said that sort of Belgium needs to apologize for what they did in the Congo. And I think I read that the parliament last year did sort of launch a truth and reconciliation and reparations commission. I'm wondering where that has gone um, and how we can encourage other nations to do the same, but also why you think an apology is so important. I do as well, but I'd love for you to sort of explain why you think it's so important. Yes, first uh, on the commission, yes, it, uh, it is uh, working for the moment. They are doing a lot of work uh, with, uh, with all the documents, the archives, and, and trying to, to make sense of all what we have. And I think it will take probably uh, many years, but mm. it's important that it is starting and that uh, all the communities can have their word and, and a dialogue can start. You will tell me how it was in South Africa. Was it a success? See, that difficult thing is, as a student of international relations, I know that there are like, you know, there's the controversy around it and, and the different views. As the granddaughter of the chair, I think they did their best. 
But, you know, as a pragmatist, I know that not everyone feels like their sort of pain was acknowledged and that not everyone had told the truth. And it was sort of blanket amnesty instead of any sort of reparations. And, you know, I, I can't imagine if I had lived through that and then had to have sort of been forced to forgive all in one go. You know, yeah. I think it would it would take time. We all forgive in our own way. And so I think it's, it was a success for where South Africa needed to go as a nation, as one. Um, but then for the individuals, of course, there's still sort of pain there that I think will always lie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's different because it was in, inside the country here, of course. Yeah. It will be in Belgium and towards our former colony. So it's a bit different. Mm -hmm. But I think even if there are shortcomings, it's never perfect, obviously. Right. But the effort is important. Yeah, I think it's important. Now, concerning the apologies, yes, I think it's very important. You know, it's like between two people, two individuals mm -hmm. or in a couple. If something bad happened, I think you have to start with apologies and then you can have the dialogue and you can uh, make uh, bridges and you can make peace, really. Mm -hmm. But it has to come with with apologies. So, yes, I really think that. Yeah. And how how can we get other nations to sort of do the same? You know, I, I know that when I'm in the, the UK, people there are surprised to hear that, you know, they stopped paying reparations to slave owners in 2015 only. And so it's like, okay, they're cl they're clearly not even near where Belgium is with the commission because people don't even know the history. And so how do we get people there? Yeah, the, the worst is that with the slavery, it's the slave owners, owners that receive exactly. the, mm -hmm. the money and not the family or, or the slaves themselves. I mean, unbelievable. But yeah, it will be very difficult in the UK because, mm. uh, and you know, People are afraid in Europe that yeah. if they start apologizing, they will have to pay. That's the big thing. It's the money of reparation that uh, frightens every government. But I mean, more than reparation, which I don't know how you can quantify, because how do you quantify all the horrors and, and pain and suffering that, that was brought upon uh, the colonized? people. Mm. So I think there are lots of different ways. There are, for example, all the artifacts that could be sent back and that's starting. For example, in Belgium, there is a, really a, a movement to send back some very precious uh, objects that were stolen from uh, from DRC. So that's one thing. Right. There is also fair trade. I always say that would be the best thing to start with is to really have a fair trade. Mm -hmm. But uh, at, again, I say the conversation has to start. Yeah. So anything will be beneficial if we start. Yeah, everything, everything starts with a conversation. And, you know, I'm in the US where you, last year we had all the protests around not necessarily just the death of George Floyd, but Black Lives Matter. And, you know, the, the constant refrain sort of from like, Southern governments is that we can't get rid of statues because they teach history. What what do you say to people who think we should sort of keep these colonial statues around the world that supposedly teach our past? Well, I think it's not right. 
it's not right because our public space is full of those statues of uh, of people that really were sometimes murderer or sometimes just uh, doing uh, bad things and, and bad trafficking. And there is no explanation. So the young people of my country or European country, they see those statues, they believe that's probably very important people and very good people that we have to celebrate, and they don't know the story. There's not even a, a descriptive at the statue to to tell what they were doing. So I think they should be in a museum mm -hmm. with the full explanation of their life. Sometimes they did some good as well, but they did a, good, a lot of uh, evil things. So I think this should be like uh, in a history book, yeah. but in a museum. Absolutely. I agree with that. I agree with that. And our public space should really benefit from having other statues. Mm -hmm especially from uh, from the colonized countries and, and heroes and and more women also. I was going to say, so let's get some statues more women statues. Yes. 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 The only ones that get the statue are, are sometimes queens, but not many women, really not. No, not like women pioneers in like science or education or, yes. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And in addition to your activism, I know that you're also an author and a documentary filmmaker and that you've done some writing about your family and made films about them. And I'm wondering what that is sort of like. You know, I, I speak about my mom and my grandfather in my book, but it's not really a book about them. Um, and I've never done a documentary on my family. And so I just wonder what, what that process is like and what you've learned from it. First of all, you should do it. <laughs> I don't know if I could. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's something that personally is very, very rewarding because you learn a lot about your own family and your roots. And I, I did a documentary on my grandparents whom I didn't know. My grandfather was died many years before I was born. And my grandmother died when I was eight. So I have mm. very little uh, memories of her. So I had to really research and go to the place uh, where they had lived and meet uh, uh, historians and, uh, and, and do a lot of research, like a proper journalist or right. historian. Yeah. And it was so interesting because I discovered many things and I, I got really close to them without even having known them properly. Yeah, I love that. It's okay, very well, emotional, actually. Yes, you should. Oh, I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, should. I didn't realize that was in my sort of lineage. Or Yeah, mm. that's really interesting. Well, then who are the people who have inspired you? Ah, so many. To start with, your grandfather. <laughs> you, you don't know, have to say amazing. that, don't worry. I know. No, I don't have to say that, but it's true. You see, it's uh, I always admired his uh, his uh, spirit and his fighting spirit, and also mm -hmm. his uh, his great love in general. So, but also many women and many mm -hmm. women who are not famous uh, that I had the chance to meet. You know, when I was doing interviews or or stories, and they're so resilient. They are so mm. incredible. And they do a lot for for communities in general. I I always say, why don't we have more women at the table after after a conflict? Because mm. when the war is finished, 
they build the community the back and all the family, yeah. but they're never the table of negotiation or very few at least. And we know that when they are at the table, the negotiations or the sort of peace agreements are longer lasting and sustainable when women are involved too. Yeah. And it's the same with climate. They, mm. they have a sense, I think, of uh, what the climate crisis is about because they want to care about Mother Earth and also their family and uh, society. Right. So they have so much to, to add to the vision. And frankly, if we're in such a mess, I don't think it's the people who created the mess or the same old <laughs> people, uh, old white men, uh, and some men of color too. Yeah. I think <laughs> women should be there to a new vision and, and young people also. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm so impressed by the young people today. I'm like, wow, you guys are really smart. Thank God we need this. Yes, smart and with a new way of seeing things, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what sort of sustains you in difficult moments? You know, COVID was a tough time and it's not over, um, but we all have difficult times and difficult moments. And so I wonder what sort of keeps you going? Well, COVID was obviously very difficult, but mm -hmm. I absolutely cannot uh, uh, protest because I have the chance to have a, a nice house in London. Yeah. Um, so um, I do a lot of my work online and virtually like we are doing now. So it was not difficult for me. And I could uh, take my bike and go, for, even when it was restricted for one hour, I could go one hour out and have fresh air. I mean, so many people had a terrible condition all over the world in one single room with several members of the family, women experiencing uh, domestic violence. I mean, so many difficult cases. Or just the people who didn't have the luxury to stay home, who yeah. had to go out because otherwise they wouldn't have food on the table. So, no, I, I really cannot complain. But I know that for young people, and even young people uh, uh, that I know and my children and their friends, it was tough, very yeah. tough. And there is a lot of depression because it's the age, 20, 18, 20, where you need all those social contact. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was tough. That is very tough. I mean, the, the mental uh, um, burden of this uh, COVID is also very, very big. But yes, what sustains me is... Like I said, going uh, outside, I like being in nature and um, and my family, of course, that's very important too. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you know, a lot of your work is online. I wonder if there's an organization or two that you are sort of a supporter of or working with at the moment that you think more people should know about that you could share with me. Oh, yes. Organization led by women, you see. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there is a very fantastic one in Bangladesh, which mm. is called Friendship, a nice name. It was founded by a, by a woman who is again one of those doer, you know. She and it's very holistic. So it's uh, about health, about uh, uh, the climate crisis, about women empowerment, about dignity, really. That. Mm because Bangladesh is suffering tremendously from the climate crisis, is 
one of the most vulnerable countries. I think it's number seven in the world Oof. because, you know, all the flooding, all the cyclones, yeah. all that. And because it's, they have a enormous population and, and very poor. So she she did uh, fantastic work. But I could also mention to you uh, another uh, organization called Hero Women Rising, mm -hmm. which uh, was created by um, a Congolese uh, woman, a dear friend, who is doing incredible work in the South Kivu, in DRC, where the situation is very difficult for women. It's a very patriarchal society there's a lot of violence because of mining because of all that and she's really uh, uh, changing the the paradigm she's trying anyway and really keep keep girls at school mm -hmm. fighting prejudice uh, fighting violence against women so yeah I could say many, many more, you see. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I will look I will look both of those up though. Thank you for sharing that. And tell me what gives you what gives you courage you? Me? Um I think I think it starts with knowing yourself. So if you know yourself, it's easier to then know what's right. And I think the courage then sort of stems from there. Does that make sense? Yes. Very true. I think, I think, I think that's what it is. And I know a lot of people say, um, you know, you have to sort of be strong and rely on yourself and all of this. And I think it's actually, if you have people in your life who you can rely on, who know you and can remind you of who you are in difficult moments, that is what you need. Um, yes. Because yes, we all want to be, you know, strong and and individuals but sometimes you just you have tough moments and i think you need those people around you who know you and know like your worth to remind you of that yeah very true <laughs> um and so i know that or this is my opinion you were sort of one of the only people of i think your privilege and background that i've heard about and read about who has spoken out as much as you have and I wonder if you have a piece of advice for the youth right now that are sort of overwhelmed with the brokenness of our world of like, you know, something to keep them going and to sort of sustain them in this moment. It's very difficult for young people. I just read that there was a survey made uh, internationally and uh, about 80% of the young people are very worried, very mm. worried about the climate crisis, very worried about the economical crisis. And the other thing, they have no trust in our leaders at all. Yeah. I mean, the numbers were incredible. So how do you motivate them? Well, <laughs> I think showing them that they have the power, that we all have the power, and but the young people are full of energy and strength, and you have seen them all over the world in the streets protesting. And just to remember that all the big changes in history have been made mainly by young people and by citizens anyway. Citizen of a country when uh, it was too much, uh, whether it was for to end slavery or, or to end apartheid in your country or, or to, to have a women's vote. It was citizen who made the change yep. and who went against the state, against the laws that were not good. 
you know, many times I hear people saying, because I'm an adept of, of uh, civil uh, disobedience, uh, non-violent, mm -hmm. and many people said, mm, how can you be against the law? It's terrible. And I said, no, it's not terrible. So many laws in the past have been uh, completely wrong and evil. Yeah. Slavery, for example, it was in the law. So you have to fight that. And now the fact is that the, the government is not doing what it should do for the citizen in yeah. terms of, uh, of the climate crisis, in terms of, uh, of uh, the inequality, which has tremendous level. So we have to go and say, we, we don't agree. We want change. The system is not working or it's yeah. working only for so for few, a few. People. Yeah. Which COVID obviously showed us that, yeah, it was oh, working for God, a few yes. people and all of a sudden. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's what we have to tell the, the, the young people and, and in general, everybody, you have the power. You have been led to believe that, no, you don't have power and the system is this one and there's no other one, which is not true. We have to change the system. It's broken. It shows. Mm -hmm. So... My uh, my advice is that to say to the people you are you can make the change and we will all be with you, my generation. We will all be with you, protesting and working for for something better. Mm, I like that. I know it's difficult yeah. because many said, "How can I change something?" No, if we are millions wanting to push our our leaders, they will have to change. They because will. we elect them so yeah they can't keep forgetting that they work for us yes i think they have forgotten yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they listen many more to to many more uh, lobbies and uh -huh. than the, the people so we have to establish that again it's us who elect them yeah lobbies and multinationals as you said earlier yeah mm. and what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity Oh, definitely the, the, the climate crisis. Yeah. Because I really think that if we don't act now, like the scientists have told us, that we had this little window of opportunity, I think that what we have seen this year in Europe, in the US, in Africa, whether it is a famine in Madagascar or the, or the terrible fires and flooding, that will happen all the time. And much more, much more, and we mm -hmm. will have so many, so many catastrophic events to the point that it will be really too late. Not for nature, because nature always recovers yeah, after yeah. a while, but for us, there will be so many, so many uh, fatalities. So that is my biggest fear. And I see that people are changing. I see that people are understanding. Even, I mean, uh, all the companies are know that they have to change but it's so slow mm. so slow and it's so so much talk and not really action yeah and it's also sad that you know as humans we seem to need something to affect us for it to matter so you know i'm thinking with climate change it was obviously affecting you know sort of countries in the global south and the global north, we were like, okay, it is bad, but it's not really hit us. And then all of a sudden there were what the floods in Germany. And I think there was a German person who was like, I never thought it would happen here. 
And we're like, well, but the scientists have been telling you and you insist on doing your own research, but like these are scientists that have years of education and science under their belt. So let's stop saying like, oh, well, let me do my own research before I believe them. It's it's just maddening. Yeah, it's it's very sad also, because as you say, it was happening for for decades Mm -hmm. uh, in the global south. Yeah. How many images have we seen of all the catastrophe, uh, the floods and, and uh, I mean, devastation, but it was not touching the, right. the north. It didn't so, touch us. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's my only hope that since we have had it so bad this summer yeah. in Europe, maybe uh, some leaders over here will, uh, will decide to act. Well, I was going to say, what is your greatest hope for humanity? So is that your hope? Mm. <laughs> My hope is, as I said before, it's not so much in the leaders, although ultimately they have obviously to, to make the shift. But my hope is uh, in the people, mm-hmm. in the people uniting, because there is no other way. Yeah, I have the same hope. And in the same time, it's not fighting the climate crisis only. It's like we said at the beginning, it's fighting all those crises together. Mm-hmm. Because they're all linked. They're all they're all linked, and we're all linked. Yeah, absolutely. So th- that's that's my hope that the people will will really unite. Okay. And you know, when there was COVID, uh, there were so many leaders who didn't do a good job, mm-hmm. but there were so many acts of solidarity between yep. the people. That was lovely to see. Wonderful. Yeah, you saw sort of our capacity for solidarity in in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, I have the same hope as you. So let's <laughs> let's make sure that it that it happens. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah, we have to talk to our friends to everybody. And everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has literally been such a treat to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. And I hope that we will stay in touch because we have lots more to discuss. Yes. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Marketing and digital growth, Kayla Gillis. And partnerships, Natalie Hope.